0: Praise the Lord. Good morning. Once again, if you are new with us, just to let you know, we uh, have started a study through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And uh, as we've already pointed out, the first 18, you can turn to John chapter 1 if you will, okay? Um, but as we've already pointed out, the first 18 verses were John's introduction forming really a, a kind of a doctrinal statement on the person and work of Jesus Christ. A section we entitled uh, a section we entitled, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Jesus said that the closer we got to his return, the more Satan would unleash false Christs and false prophets into the world. Well, that started when Jesus was Jesus' first coming. And John wants us to have eternal life uh, through the things that he is writing about the true Christ, but he wants us to know who that true Christ is. That's why he spent the first 18 verses talking about the true Christ of God. Now, starting with verse 19, John's gospel takes the form of a narrative where he now begins to recount for us the life and ministry of Jesus. But before he focuses on Jesus' ministry, John starts the narrative portion of his gospel by introducing us to John the Baptist. Now, as we've already pointed out, John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner or herald of, of the Messiah. Messiah was to be the king of Israel. In those days, every king had a herald that would go out before him, announcing the king was coming, get things ready, clean up your yards, paint those fences, that kind of thing. Get your houses in order the king is coming. And so God, before he sent his king, sent out his herald, not to tell us to clean up our houses, but to clean up our hearts and uh, prepare themselves, not us because we weren't there, but prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. Now, as we have already mentioned, there was a couple of primary scriptures that talked about the coming of the herald. Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, that would be John, and he will prepare prepare the way before me. And then in Isaiah 40, verse 3, when they asked John, the leadership of, of Israel, who are you? You know, you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not that prophet. Who are you? And he said, he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. This is, I'm the guy that God prophesied was coming before the Messiah would show up. You think they would have been excited? Oh, if you're the guy, Messiah, well, he must be coming close behind you. But they didn't. No. they. Well, we'll talk about more why they were so clueless as time goes on in this study, but... Starting with verse 19, and then running to the end of chapter 1, I have uh, organized the chapter around three main points. The Inquisition of the Jews, that was them interrogating John, who are you, and so on. The introduction of John, as he introduces the Christ, and then the invitation of Jesus. Now, we've already looked at the first two in our uh, last two previous studies, which now brings us to the third main point in our outline, the invitation of Jesus. So. Let's pick it up in verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with his two disciples, uh, with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, once again, as he did in verse 29, John makes it a point to introduce Jesus to uh, the crowd that was there that day by saying, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. You know, it's interesting that John didn't present Jesus to the crowds as the long awaited Messiah of Israel. That's what I would have done, right? Hey, look, there's the Messiah. We've been waiting for him all these years. Here he is. You know, that kind of thing. John didn't do that. It was kind of interesting how he didn't focus on Jesus' title as Messiah, he focused on his ministry. You see, Messiah was his title. Lamb of God spoke of his mission. It's interesting that, and we talked about this last time we met, it's interesting that they thought they needed a king. (laughs) But God knew they needed a lamb. They were looking for physical deliverance from the bondage of Rome, but God was giving them spiritual deliverance from the bondage of sin and death. And once again, guys, the natural man, the natural man or woman, the unsaved people they're always concerned and consumed with the physical it's all they really know but god knows that man's spiritual needs primarily forgiveness of sins far outweigh the physical because the spiritual needs of mankind have connected to them eternal consequences there is no more important issue in the life i don't care what you're going through this morning I don't care if you're behind in the rent. That's important. I'm not minimizing that. I don't care if you've just lost your job and you're not sure what the future is going to bring. I'm not minimizing that. That's important. But your greatest need, the greatest need of all humanity, is forgiveness of sin. Because if you receive Christ and he washes you, which he will, of your sins, you have a place in his kingdom for all eternity. And nothing can beat that that's the most important thing right but here's the problem we talk about the forgiveness of sin listen no human being born of adam can save us because the bible teaches that sinners can't die for sinners and it would take the death god made this very clear in both the old and new testaments that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins in leviticus 17 11, I have given you the blood upon the altar to make atonement for the soul, God said. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So it would have to be, you know, sin brings death. The soul that sins shall surely die. God in the old covenant said, I love you. I don't want you to die because of your sins, my people Israel. Therefore, I will allow you to bring an animal sacrifice. The blood of which will cover your sin. Not take away, as John said, the Lamb of God would do when he came. And here he is. I will allow the blood of animals to temporarily cover your sins so we can have fellowship until the ultimate sacrifice for sin can come the lamb of god my son who will take away the sin of the world sinners can't die for sinners and here's the thing god illustrated this in the law of moses when he said that he would only accept as atonement for sin animals that were without what spot or blemish what does that mean without a spot was they were they couldn't be born with any natural defect blemish they couldn't have any acquired scars or broken bones and what was god communicating they had to be perfect the animal that i allow you to bring to me to cover your sins temporarily has to be without spot or blemish has to be perfect and again under the old covenant god allowed these animals to temporarily cover sins until jesus could come And Jesus Christ, guys, as we all know, was the only perfect and sinless man, the only man ever born without spot or blemish. He was born without original sin, and he never sinned during his life. He was the only man ever born. Adam was not born. He was created. Don't come up here and say, you forgot Adam. No, I'm not forgetting Adam. Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth. He wasn't born. Jesus Christ is the only man ever born into humanity, that was without spot and blemish, who alone could die for our sins, the innocent dying for the guilty. Why? Because he was the God-man. God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why John continued his introduction of Jesus earlier in verses 32 to 34, by making sure we all knew that he, Jesus, the Messiah, was no son of Adam. He wasn't as the virgin-born son of God in adam all what die in christ all shall be made alive again if jesus was born of an earthly father he would have had original sin transferred onto him sinners can't die for sinners that's why he had to be virgin born the sin was passed down from the father you say why i don't know Ask god that's just how it worked And god's account, sin was passed down from the father to the children and jesus didn't have an earthly father he had an earthly mother he was truly one of us, but he had, his father was, of course, God the Father. And that's why Mary was impregnated with the, by the Holy Spirit and Jesus was virgin born. It bypassed original sin. The only way he could be born without spot. And then eventually he lived a perfect life. Now, the two disciples of John the Baptist mentioned in verses 35 and 7 are John, the writer of this gospel, who would eventually become the Apostle John and his friend Andrew, who was the younger brother of Simon Peter. So here we learn that there were, excuse me, here we learn that they were disciples of John before becoming disciples of Jesus. I'm not sure if you all knew that, but, but, uh, but, yeah, but uh, John, uh, who would become the apostle John, and Andrew were first disciples of John the Baptist before they became disciples of Jesus. We read in verses, uh, verse 37, "...the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus." Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Now if John, this is a little bit of a controversy, not a big one, but uh, if John was using Roman time, this would have been 10 a.m. in the morning. If he was going by Jewish time, it was 4 p.m. in the afternoon. But listen, when John and Andrew asked Jesus where he was staying, it was their way of saying, you know, we've heard a lot about you, and we might want to become your disciples. Can we talk? Can we talk about it? One author said, and I quote, what they basically were saying is, where are you staying while you're in town, Where you're living in town? Uh, the author said it may have suggested if you are, uh, too busy now, we can visit later. That's could be what they were saying. But Jesus invited them to spend the day with him. It was 10 o'clock, this writer believes, in the morning. And no doubt he told them something of his mission, revealed their own hearts to them, and answered their questions. They were both so impressed that they found their brothers and brought them to Jesus, unquote. Guys, in those days, a disciple, the Greek word is mathetes, it means a learner, a learner. But in those days, a disciple was a person who actually lived with their rabbi. These disciples all lived with their rabbi so they could learn and absorb everything they could from this person's life, this person they wanted to emulate. When Jesus said to uh, John and Andrew, uh, when they said, where are you staying? And he said, come and see. Well, it was just a way of inviting them, inviting them to live with him and become his disciples. Now, You may not know this from casual reading of the Gospels, but Jesus actually called these men to be his disciples three different times before they fully obeyed by leaving their jobs to follow Jesus as full-time disciples. The first meeting, the first invitation took place right here in John 1, verses 35 to 42. The second invitation, the second call, that Jesus gave to them to be his full-time disciples to forsake all to follow him fully comes out of Matthew 4 Why don't you turn there Matthew 4 and let's just pick it up in verse 18 and Jesus walking by the sea of Galilee saw two brothers Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, you read that account in Matthew and it seems that right here, as Matthew records, they did leave their livelihood and followed Jesus fully, completely. All right. However, as we study the gospels a little further, well, they did for a time, but it didn't stick, didn't last, wasn't a permanent thing. We know that because in Luke chapter five, verses one to ten, we see them back fishing again. Okay, so they're back fishing again, and so the third time Jesus repeats his invitation for them to leave their fishing nets and follow him permanently to become fishers of men. He was calling them to a brand new life. He didn't want them to add him to their lives. He wanted them to leave their old lives and follow him completely. And so this time Luke 5.11 says, So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. And that third time was the charm, as they say, And um, now they followed Jesus full-time, all right, full-time. Now, look, let me just say this. I realize that not everyone is called to forsake their jobs and careers to follow Jesus in the full-time ministry. Um, Let me back up and just say this, though, first. This teaches us that once a person is saved, it often takes time for them to leave the life they have known for so long to follow Jesus fully. It would be wonderful on day one when we gave our hearts to Christ that we could make a clean break from the old life and just immediately start living a full-on life of commitment to the Lord, right? That would be ideal. Some people do it, not many. I don't think I did it, and maybe some of you here did. I don't know. Uh, it, it takes time, and God knows that. God's very patient uh, as he works in us to transition out of the old life, it fully into the new life, which I again I understand that God doesn't call all of His people into full-time ministry. Well, let me say this: He does. We are all in full-time ministry. Some of us have the blessing of getting paid for it. All right, let me just put it that way. Okay, we are all really once we give our hearts to Christ, we are His disciples. We are, as Paul the Apostle put it, living epistles. Our lives are to preach a message and that message is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is God incarnate and we have given our hearts to him and he is now inside of us through his Holy Spirit and my life is different. Uh, I have got a purpose. I'm not just meandering through life without any sense of purpose, just getting up, making money and going back to sleep and in the process, you know, eating, drinking, partying, whatever and so on. I have a real purpose. For my life now, it's an eternal purpose. I have been called to be a herald. John the Baptist was the herald of Jesus' first coming. Guess what? We're all heralds of the second coming. And we need to understand that. It's a great responsibility, right? So, yeah, I realize that, you know, we're all called into full time ministry. Some of us have the b- blessing of being paid for it. Thank you very much. Uh, but let me just say this even though not all of us are called into full-time ministry in the sense that we, you know, get paid for it and things, we are all called into full-time commitment. Sometimes Christians believe that because God has not called them to be a pastor or a missionary or uh, something like that, full-time ministry, that, and they wouldn't put it this way, but this is kind of the, the thing, that, they're not really called to be as committed as some of us who are in full-time ministry now that's very wrong okay that really is a a, a something the devil has kind of sowed in people's thinking that you know you have the professional christians and i leave the work of ministry to them okay some churches even teach this you you just bring them to church we'll take care of it we'll give them the gospel we'll get them saved you you're not qualified just your job, bring them here. This is the the this is the, where the evangelism takes place and so on. I don't believe that for a second. You know, Jesus didn't say bring them into church. He said go out into the world. We're, yeah, bring your friends to church. I'm not saying it's wrong. But as full-time ministers of the gospel, we are to go out into the world and uh, be a light, show people through our lives, first of all, that we are changed, and then as God gives opportunity, share the gospel. Share the gospel. But um, it's very important that we understand that, uh, you know, we are all called in, in, to be a, a full-time commitment to him. And, um, you know, that means that, well, the Bible talks about Jesus wants to be our first love. The Greek word means supreme. Sure, we love our families and we love, you know, different things, but we he is to be supreme, our supreme love the Lord of all. A Lord is not a name. We call him the Lord Jesus, but Lord is not a name. It's a title. It's a title for somebody who has control of your life, and if he doesn't have control of your life completely, he's not your Lord, really. The idea is that when we call Jesus, he said to a group of would-be disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I tell you? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, he said but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The idea is, if you really have made Jesus your Lord, you're going to want to do what he's commanding you to do. Not just in the pages of Scripture, but how he's leading your life individually. And sometimes he'll call you out, and you have to be open to this. Sometimes he will call you away from a career or a job you've known all your life, you've worked hard to to achieve, some kind of a, a career or whatever. And he will sometimes call you away from that. Are you open to that? Because if you obey the call of God upon your life to do whatever he's calling you to do, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you will never know the joy, peace, blessing that you'll know through full obedience. I, I just want you to understand that, okay? These guys, Hemhaw, I don't know what they were thinking. You know, uh, you know. They come follow me. They followed for a while, I went back to the old life. Uh, guys, remember me, come follow me. Followed him for went back to the old life. Finally, third time, it stuck. All right? But I wonder how many are like that. The Lord is calling you, and you're saying, yeah, I want to do it. Oh, no, like, now's not a good time. Uh, the Lord's calling you into a ministry. Uh, and He gets excited for a while, but then it doesn't take. You know, we just want to make sure that we are, we submit all to him and obey all that he has said. Now, in verse 40 we read, Now one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, uh, Mashiach in the Hebrew, Christos in the Greek, both being the same thing, anointed one, anointed one. Verse 42, And he brought him to Jesus, Andrew brought Simon Peter's brother to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, looked at Peter, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone or a rock. Okay. Andrew was Simon Peter's younger brother and a real soul winner. In fact, one author summed up Andrew's life in this regard by saying, and I quote, Whenever you find Andrew in John's gospel... He is bringing somebody to Jesus, his brother Peter, the lad with the loaves and fishes of chapter six, uh, and the Greeks who wanted to see Jesus in chapter twelve. No sermons from Andrew are recorded, but he certainly preached great sermons by his actions as a personal soul winner. End quote. Again, guys, Simon. Well, the word Simon means shifting or unstable. Now, who names their kids shifting or unstable? You know, you pretty much pigeonhole your child when you, you know, give them a name like that, right? They're going to tend to live up to that. But Simon, the name means shifting or unstable. Jesus now renames him Cephas, which is Aramaic for a stone or a rock. And so Simon means shifting, Cephas means a rock. Now listen, when Jesus gave Peter that new name, he wasn't a rock at that moment. That was a name he grew into, right? Just like when you and I got saved and God pronounced us a son or a daughter of God, that was not a title or a name that we, were, we immediately fulfilled. We grew into that, right? I mean, we were sons of daughters of God immediately, of course. But with all that that meant about really um, representing our father properly as children of God, well, let's face it. We, a lot of us stayed in the world for a long time before we really got serious about the Lord. And, uh, but, but Peter eventually grew into the name that Jesus Christ gave to him. And um, it's interesting, the transformation that takes place in a person's life when they decide to follow Jesus with all their heart and life. You know, we see a similar transformation take place with the men who joined themselves to David a man after God's own heart, and often in the Bible is a type of Christ. Not always, but David in many places in the Old Testament becomes a type of Christ. And David had the amazing ability, because of his heart for God, to draw people to him and inspire those around him. Well, David was out in the wilderness for 10 years running from King Saul because Saul knew God had chosen David to replace him. Saul was a disaster. We studied this in 1 Samuel. And the idea was that David was now running from Saul for his life, and when word got out that David was in the wilderness running from Saul, it says in First Samuel twenty-two verse two, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented, gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about four hundred men with him. David's in the wilderness. He's the type of Christ. When people hear that David's running for Saul, guys from all over the land come to David. They want to hang out with David. They want to join up with David. And here they are, okay, discontented group, you know, know, those in distress, those in debt, those who are discontented, okay, not really the kind of guys you think would make a good army. But as these guys spent, as these men spent time with David, an interesting thing began to happen. A transformation began to take place. These 400 men, and the number eventually grew to 600, but as they spent time with David, they became like him, men after God's own heart. And in the process, as I've said before, this ragtag group of misfits and malcontents became a super elite group of fighting men, possibly the finest soldiers this world has ever known. If you study David's mighty men in the Old Testament, they never lost a battle. They never lost a battle. Now you tell me if these weren't dynamic guys. They didn't start out as dynamic guys. They started out as basically rejects of society. But as they hung out with David, they were transformed. Why? Because David was a type of Christ. And the same transformation takes place in all of our lives who have joined ourselves to Jesus, the son of David, right? A transformation takes place we become like him second corinthians 3 18 we are transformed by the spirit into his image men and women with his heart and it seems guys the greater the dysfunction the greater the transformation right people say well gee you don't know my life i mean okay maybe other people can come to jesus and he's going to transform their life into something great or good not me boy you, you don't understand the life i've lived okay maybe i don't doesn't matter. Because God delights in taking the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies. Because when he works in their lives to transform them into something that the world could never do, well, then God gets all the glory. God gets all the for the work he does. That's why he often goes to people who are society's rejects. People who are so badly broken that society has cast them into the junk heap you know, they're just beyond hope. God delights in going to the scrap heap of humanity, pulling out people whose lives have been broken and destroyed through drugs and all kinds of other things, sin, and he reclaims them. But he doesn't just reclaim them, he remakes them. They become new creations. And a transformation takes place that the world can't understand it will never understand fully how God puts his hand on a person's life, and they become a new creation. We see this transformation take place with the men Jesus chose to be his disciples. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. And Let's pick it up in verse 2. <clears throat> Matthew 10, verse 2. Now the names of the twelve apostles... And here is Jesus is choosing from his disciples twelve to be apostles. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these First Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. I want you to take a good hard look at the men Jesus chose to start the most important religious movement in the history of mankind. He chose one man who was impulsive and unstable, Simon Peter. A couple of hotheads, brothers named James and John, sons of thunder. Remember that was their nickname? Okay. A skeptic named Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? A doubter named Thomas. A political rabble-rouser slash assassin uh, named Simon the Zealot. Listen, all but Judas were radically transformed because all but Judas were truly saved. Judas was never saved. We'll see that more as we go through the Gospel of John. But look, would you have chosen these men for this ministry? If God had said to you, I'm about ready to start the greatest work in the history of mankind. I need 12 guys who will serve me. Will you find them for me? Where would you go? Where where would I go? I'd probably go to the best evangelical seminaries and Bible colleges. I, I would look for the people who are the brightest, the most articulate, and so powerful speakers and communicators. That's not what Jesus did. He went up to Galilee to gather most of his disciples. That was the Hicksville, backwoods, you know. I mean, you know, these were farmers and fishermen and just blue-collar guys. Nothing special. And yet they were transformed in the presence of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. Don't ever forget this. God never chooses a person to use based on what they are at that moment, but based on what he knows they can become through his power and grace in time you know the world looks at those who are strong self confident and assertive to be leaders it's what the psychologists call snls strong natural leaders the world thinks that only those who have a lot of letters after their names a lot of degrees you know highly intelligent and gifted with natural abilities natural abilities these are the only ones qualified to be leaders the world even takes outward appearance into consideration when choosing its leaders you know height stature beauty and so on the uh, prophet samuel made that mistake as we have already studied in first samuel when god sent him to the house of jesse to anoint a new king because saul was a disaster so god said to samuel the prophet go to the house of jesse i'm going to have you anoint one of his sons to be the new king of israel so samuel goes there and uh, the first one that jesse brings out is Eliab. he's the oldest and samuel takes one look at this kid and goes wow this is a good looking kid tall and strong looking this has got to be the lord's anointed And the Lord immediately speaks to Samuel's heart and says, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In fact, God was about to choose such a non-entity, okay, if I can put it that way, after Jesse made all of his sons pass before Samuel, God says, No, 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 no there's no one left he says to jesse well is this it well jesse says, well there's one left he's just a kid it, you know i don't know what david was 13 14 he's out tending the sheep certainly he can't be god's pick for a new king of israel we'll go get him and david walks in god speaks to samuel's heart and says here's the one god was not looking for somebody who was super intelligent or good looking or whatever he was looking at the heart Saul was not a shepherd. Therefore, Saul didn't know how to shepherd God's people. And God says, now, you people pick Saul. He was your pick. Disaster. I'm going to pick the next king. I'm going to give you a man who has a heart as a shepherd because he will shepherd you with that heart. God always looks at the heart. Always. As the Apostle Paul... Let me just say this, if a person has the right heart, a heart for God, regardless of their physical attributes or, you know, their um, inadequacies or, you know, um, even their moral failings before this, all right, they can still be used by God, and in fact, sometimes God will choose those that we just said, choose the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies, because when he does use them, he gets all the glories we said. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. You know, whenever I, I teach on how God wants to use people for his glory, immediately, a lot of Christians, especially newer ones, think, well, yeah, that's all well and fine. I can never serve God. I mean, who, who am I to think I could serve God, right? I'm just not qualified. I'm not adequate, you know? And to that I say this, Everybody, I'm convinced, everybody that God has called, because God only calls people with the right hearts. Everybody that God has called to be in ministry, has, they've all felt the same way. They've all been overwhelmed with feelings of, of unworthiness, inadequacy, and so on. Moses said, when God said, Moses, I want you to be a deliverer of my people. Moses said, Lord, how can I serve you? I stutter. Get somebody else. I'm damaged. I can't. I'm not any good speaking. David. Jeremiah, Timothy, and Mary were only teenagers when God called them into the ministry. I'm sure they didn't feel worthy or qualified. Even uh, the great apostle Paul expressed his unworthiness at, at his call by God into the ministry. I'll give you two scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, he said, For I am the least of the apostles, who, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. Paul's saying, look, God made me an apostle. I'm certainly not worthy. In fact, not only was I not worthy, I actually persecuted God's church, God's people. That should have disqualified me. But God, by his grace, has called me. I am what I am by the grace of God. And then to a young pastor named Timothy. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 14, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Look, let me just say this. Everything God gives to us, everything God wants to do through us, is all by His grace. Grace simply means getting what I don't deserve. Paul said it here. I mean, I didn't deserve to be in ministry. I persecuted God's people. I did it ignorantly. I thought I was serving God when I was trying to stamp out this, what I thought was a cult, Christianity. I realized after the Lord met me on the road to Damascus that uh, I was on the wrong side fighting the Lord himself and not really serving him. But God's grace was upon me. God chose me, and God put me in the ministry because of his grace. I didn't deserve it. It's just a gift of God. That's how we have to approach everything. Now, let me just say this very quickly. And I mean quickly. I'm going to give you, let me give you the three things that are necessary for effective ministry. We're talking about being in the ministry and what is God looking for, what is the qualifications. I'll give you three that are necessary for effective ministry. The first was expressed in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9 which simply says for the eyes of the lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for the looking to show himself strong looking to use those whose hearts are loyal to him the hebrew word translated loyal carries with it the idea of completeness or wholeheartedness the same hebrew word could also be translated at peace with so first of all god is looking for people whose to use, whose hearts are fully given over to him. Not half-hearted folks. People who are, whose hearts are fully given over to him, whose hearts are at peace with God. What does that mean? Well, a Christian whose heart is, at, is not at peace with God signifies a heart that is restless, a heart that thinks that maybe the world still has something to offer in the way of pleasure and fulfillment and happiness. You can read the life of Solomon once again in Ecclesiastes. How for many years he walked away from God to get into all kinds of pursuits in the world, thinking that they were going to bring him happiness and fulfillment, only to find out that none of it satisfied. It was all emptiness. And he finally comes back to God at the end of his life and shares with us in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, what he's learned. But Solomon's heart was not at peace with God. For many years. And so the first qualification for ministry is to have a loyal heart. Second qualification for effective ministry is found in Acts 4. Why don't you turn there? Acts 4. Actually this uh, started in Acts 3 when God used Peter to heal a man who had been lame from his mother's womb who for the last I don't know 40 years I think uh, had been sitting outside the gates of Jerusalem uh, begging alms. And Peter comes by and looks at the guy, and the guy thinks Peter's going to give him some money. And Peter says, I don't have any money, but I do have I'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. That's pretty neat. And um, the guy starts taking laps around the whole temple area. Everyone sees the guy, know he's the guy that was lame for all those years. A big crowd gathers, and Peter preaches a dynamic message. A whole bunch of people get saved. This gets the attention of the scribes, Pharisees, the leadership. They, they call Peter and John in. They confront him. They threaten them, really, about not preaching any more in the name of Christ. And Peter, of course, you remember the the I think it was in. The, uh, he went on to say um, that you know whether we should obey God rather than you, whether we should obey you rather than God. We'll let you judge, <laughs> but we can't help but speak the things we have seen and heard. All right, we're called to do this. All right, but it says in chapter four, verse thirteen, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they, had, they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. In other words, they hadn't gone to seminary. They hadn't, they hadn't gone to the Pharisees' uh, you know, Bible school, whatever. And they, when, they, uh, when they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Wow. Wow. You know, today, many in the church believe that a seminary degree is what qualifies a person to be in ministry. Guys, nothing could be farther from the truth. I have seen over the years many men who had seminary degrees that I am convinced God had not called into full-time ministry, especially pastoral ministry. They have the degree. They don't have the call. Can I just say this? Graduating from seminary doesn't make you a pastor, it makes you a graduate. The only thing that equips or qualifies a person for ministry is the call of God upon their life because whom the Lord calls, he equips. And how does he equip a person after he has called them into ministry? Well, by them being with Jesus, Acts 4.13. And how does a person have contact and fellowship with Jesus on a regular basis? Of course, John, James, Peter, they had physical contact with Jesus. They walked with him. They, they stayed with him in wherever he was living. We don't have the luxury of having Jesus here physically, but we do have him here through his spirit, and especially through his word. Jesus is the word of God. You have Jesus in print in your lap, basically, the word of God. And you say, well, how does a person have contact and fellowship with Jesus? By staying in the word. Again, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or, of course, woman of God may be complete, listen, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul calls the Bible the words of Christ or Christ in the word in Colossians three sixteen. Guys, this is the best ministry training you can get. Be with Jesus. And then the third qualification for ministry is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We spent a lot of time last time we met in our last study uh, looking at this, how this is the empowering for service. Get the CD or go online, listen to that uh, message, the one just before this we did. Because there's there's no way we can serve God effectively if we're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit in them, not every Christian has the Holy Spirit upon them, and that's the anointing for service. Get the tape listen to it. Look, we're done. Let me just ask you one more time to look at the men that Jesus chose to start the most important work in the history of mankind, the work of saving fallen sinners. If you don't If you're not encouraged by looking at the guys that Jesus picked, because if Jesus could choose these guys and use these guys, wow, he can use me. I'll leave you with the words of J. Vernon McGee, who talks on this subject. He said, and I quote, The wonder of it all is that Jesus called men like this. I have always felt that since he called imperfect men like the disciples were, He may be able, and is fully able, to use me. And he may be able to use you too. It is encouraging to know that we don't have to be super-duper saints to be used by him. Whatever your talent may be, if you will turn it over to him, he can use it for his glory. So keep that in mind. Next week, God willing, we will finish up chapter 1. And there's some very interesting things. Uh, that are at the end of chapter one that I think you're going to want to understand. So come on back. We'll study those together. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for your spirit who lives within us and opens our understanding to the things you have given us in your word. The the goal is to be like Jesus, Father. The goal is to read your word and allow the spirit to... um, energize it in our hearts and lives that we become more and more like jesus and we thank you lord we just pray that you will continue to work in uh, through these studies that lord um, we might learn the things you have put here for our learning but also lord walk in the truth that you have given us we thank you we ask all this in jesus precious name amen